You're listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm your host, Jamie Howison. Well, I suppose it's fair to say I'm your host, but I'm also the speaker for this one. On Saturday, June 12th, I participated in a round table as part of a day-long Zoom conference called Identity, Culture, and Scripture. Over the course of the day, attendees heard from a number of different perspectives on being white and Christian, on being indigenous and Christian, on being black and Christian. And then, as the afternoon reached about midpoint, we entered into this discussion. The invitation of Vincent Solomon, who organized the whole conference. I was joined by Bishop Chris Harper, the first Treaty 6 priest to be ordained a bishop. He is currently the Bishop of Saskatoon. And the Reverend Chunyan Lam, a Chinese immigrant from Hong Kong, who's an ordained pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Canada, and currently serves at an Anglican parish in the Diocese of Ottawa. Now, we were all invited to explore this theme of identity, culture, and scripture, but we came at it in very different ways. In some ways, I was probably the most linear. I talked about my own identity, my own culture, and my own understanding of scripture, but it also went down a winding side path. Thanks to an essay by the theological ethicist Stanley Hauerwas from his 1981 book, A Community of Character, an essay called A Story-Formed Community, Reflections on Watership Down. You'll hear a good deal about why Watership Down, a book for young people, has much to say about the church and the telling of its biblical story. Just before my talk began, Vincent had given an introduction, a little bit on who I am, what my ministry is, and a little bit about our friendship as well, and then I launched in. Thank you, Vincent, and thank you all for uh, having me here in your midst in this unusual way. When the invitation came from Vincent, it was very much, can you give some perspective, your own personal perspective on your identity, culture, and scripture. And so I'm going to go straight at it, but there's going to be an interesting bunny trail along the way. And uh, calling it a bunny trail is is actually a little mischievous. You'll see what I mean. How do I identify myself? Well, obviously, I suppose I'm white, male, and Christian. I was born and raised here in Winnipeg, And as Vincent pointed out, I've been in ordained ministry in this diocese since 1987. If you do the quick calculations, that will lead you to conclude that I must be somewhere around the age of 60. And I am, in fact, 60. So I grew up in a social context in which the last vestiges of Christendom were still very visible. Stores closed on Sundays. There was prayer in the schools a Christmas pageant yearly in my elementary school. And in that school, pretty much every kid in my class would have been able to identify their church affiliation, even if their family seldom or never attended. My family did attend. 
and we participated very actively in our church. During my elementary school years, it was Westwood Presbyterian Church, and then in junior high through high school, Church of the Way, which is an um, independent evangelical church. It was in university that I began to make my way into the Anglican tradition, and by the end of my undergraduate degree, I was already heading towards theological studies. To dig a bit deeper into the matter of my ethnicity, I am a Canadian of Scottish descent on both my mom and my dad's sides. My father emigrated in the mid-50s, having found the economy in post-war Britain held very few opportunities for employment for him. And once here, he quickly came to embrace his citizenship as a Canadian of Scottish descent, rather than as a Scottish Canadian. My mother's family roots go back considerably further. Her great-great-grandparents actually fled to Canada from Scotland in circumstances that are the stuff of a Victorian romance novel. His name was Gordon Smith, and he was a laborer on the estate of Lord Gordon in the Scottish Highlands. Her name was Kitty Gordon. She was the daughter of Lord Gordon. So the Lord's daughter and the laborer, this was a romance that would have been highly unacceptable and might actually have put the young man at considerable risk for his life. So they eloped and ended up in Toronto in the 1840s. It was his grandson, Sidney Smith, my great-grandpa, who moved to Winnipeg in the early 1900s to pursue the grain trade, and at least a few of us in the family line are still here. Over the years, I have explored my family history. I do take some real pride in my Scots heritage. The Howisons are members of Clan Donald, specifically of, of the MacDonald of Slate branch of the clan. If you know anything at all about clan history, you would know that the MacDonalds are sworn enemies of the Campbells. With a historic antipathy that makes the feuding between the Hatfields and the McCoys in the States look like a Sunday school picnic. When my dad first emigrated, some well-meaning person from his workplace arranged a date for him with a young woman of Scots heritage. Then he found out her last name was Campbell, and he wasn't actually sure he should go on the date. He had an aunt in Scotland who refused to eat Campbell's soup. He did go on the date. It didn't amount to anything. But in time, he met my mom, and they were soon married. One more little detail from the historic antipathy between the McDonald's and the Campbell's. One of my closest, long-standing friends is a fellow named Larry Campbell. In the 1990s, he traveled in the Highlands with his family. They ended up at a pub in the Valley of Glencoe, where a particularly notorious event in that clan rivalry had taken place in 1692. As he entered the pub, he noticed a brass plaque by the door that read, No Dogs, No Campbells. Well, he risked entry for the sake of the great live music, trying to make up which surname he might use if he was asked, 
I told him he should have just used Howison. We've always said that our shared identity as fellow Christians and members of the body of Christ has erased the old hostilities and united us as friends. Sure, both of us grew up here in Winnipeg, far from the long memories of the Highlanders. That also made a big difference. But I like to lean into my primary identity as being that of Christian, of a disciple of Jesus. And so, a Campbell is my brother. Now, it also needs to be said that I'm a privileged person, white, male, middle class, raised in a good and stable family, able to attend university and theological college without undue financial hardship. I'm also a settler in this land, the roots on my mom's side going back to when Canada was yet a colony of the British Empire. Those things are all true. But if I'm going to keep them in check, I also need to confess my fidelity to Jesus and to root my imagination in the scriptures, most particularly in the great stories and narrative arc of both the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian New Testament. We are meant to be formed by our biblical stories, meant to be, as the theologian Stanley Hauerwas once wrote, we're meant to be a story-formed community. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, part of what he means is that to simply read bits of the Bible or rehearse some scriptural stories, that doesn't mean that we're being shaped by them. It doesn't mean that they are forming or guiding us as a church, a people together, or as individuals. To illustrate this, in a 1981 essay, Hauerwas turned to Richard Adams' novel for young readers, Watership Down. It's a novel about rabbits, so the bunny trail. The story involves the journey, a kind of exodus really, of a small group of rabbits who determine that they need to leave their current warren, their current home, after one of their group sees a new sign posted on the meadow fence. Though that rabbit doesn't read, none of them read, he is right to have his fears aroused because the sign is announcing the development of a new housing estate that will destroy the meadow and the rabbit warren with it. This little group tries to warn the rabbit chief of the warren, but he'll have none of it. His warren is safe, strong, and well-managed. There can be no threat. Well, as Adams tells his story, one of the characteristics of that warren is that while they still tell their old traditional stories, their scriptures, so to speak, they told them really just for entertainment. Meanwhile, Howarus insists that the rabbits who leave begin to be formed more deeply by the stories they carry and treasure. The thing that binds them together as they search for a new home is the story of the Prince of Rabbits, El Arira, and they only come together as a body, as a rabbitdom through the traditions of El Arira. So now they're telling stories, but in a new way. And they soon, in their travels, this little band comes across another rabbit warren, a member of which invites them to join. Everybody's welcome. 
This is a very different kind of warren, though, for though the rabbits are all large and well-fed, none of them are strong or fast. They have no chief rabbit. All the rabbits are said to do whatever they pleased. Notably, the old stories, the stories of El Arira, the prince of rabbits, are no longer told. And when one of the traveling rabbits is invited to tell a story, it's met with blank stares in this new warren. One of their host comments, I always think these traditional stories retain a lot of charm, especially when they're told in the real old-fashioned spirit. At that point, another rabbit chimes in saying, We don't tell the old stories very much. Our stories and poems are mostly about our own lives here. Elorira doesn't mean much to us. Not that your friend's story wasn't very charming. But to the journeying rabbits, the exodus rabbits, the stories weren't about charm or entertainment. They are stories that told the truth. One of them comments, Elorira is a trickster, and rabbits always need tricks. No, said a new voice from the far end of the hall. Rabbits need dignity and above all, the will to accept their fate. With this, Adams is foreshadowing what will soon be revealed as the murky secret, the lie of that warren. The farmer has been feeding them, chasing off foxes and other predators, making life for the rabbits very comfortable, easy, and safe. The farmer has also been periodically snaring a rabbit or two for his dinner, and they all know it. They all know it, but refuse to talk about it. They don't tell the old stories, or maybe they, they can't honestly tell them at all, because those old stories are all about the need for rabbits to be fast, alert, a bit tricky, and always on guard against the predator. Our story-formed rabbits can't abide the lie that they're seeing. And soon they're off to establish their own new warren. Yet in the course of the story, they encounter yet another warren that's left the old stories behind. This one is a militaristic dictatorship under the rule of a chief rabbit named General Woundwort. Because the old stories had been set aside as irrelevant superstition, this highly disciplined, highly controlled warren had nothing by which to measure its own ethics. No moral compass that might challenge an ethos that said effectively, discipline and control will keep us safe from predators, even if that meant killing one of their own to maintain order. Well, the story of the rabbits rolls on with quite a reckoning between the new warren of our heroes and this militaristic one. But in time, peace is made. And the sharing of the old stories, their scriptures, so to speak, is a significant part of peace being made. But why am I telling you all about rabbits? Here, I'm going to cite Stanley Hauerwas again, a full paragraph. We, as Christians no less than rabbits, depend on narratives to guide us. And this is particularly important to Christians because they also claim that their lives are formed by the story of a prince. 
Like Elorira, our prince was defenseless against those who would rule the world with violence. He had a power, however, which the world knew not. But he insisted that we could form our lives together by trusting in truth and love to banish the fears that create enmity and discord. To be sure, we have not always been faithful to his story, but that is no reason for us to think it is an unrealistic demand. Rather, it means we must challenge ourselves to be the kind of community where such a story can be told and manifested by a people formed in accordance with it. For if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, then everything else follows, doesn't it? Close quote. In a famous address from 1917, the great Swiss theologian Karl Barth insisted that within the Bible there is a strange new world, the world of God. Much as people of European origin might have imagined that the biblical world lined up neatly with our own world, think again of all those paintings and pictures of a very white Jesus with flowing brown hair. The world presented in the Bible is really a new one for all of us, regardless of our cultural or ethnic background. Yes, we can recognize very human qualities in the characters from those ancient stories. We see sorrow and joy, failings and flaws, jealousy, loyalty, emotions of all sorts. Yet they live in a landscape that is in so many ways utterly strange and utterly different from ours. In that strangeness, we can glimpse something of God and of human strivings to understand, even wrestle with the divine. That's why time and again we return to our old stories, to see what newness might be found, and how we might again be reshaped, reformed, and set in a truthful place. Being immersed in the scriptures is what keeps me claiming Christian and disciple as my primary identities, with my Scots heritage, mild Canadian patriotism, and middle-class privilege set off to the side, yet still watched closely so that I don't let any of those things leak too easily back in and sour my discipleship. Also, I need to be aware that none of us read scripture in a vacuum or alone. The Bible belongs to all of us, but no one can interpret it alone. So as a Canadian white male settler, when I read the Bible, I need also to hear the voices of women readers, indigenous, black, and Asian readers, their eyes, their context, their experiences and traditions will help me to see and hear things anew. In short, we need each other when we turn to our great old stories. We need each other to be shaped by them together, attentive to what the other sees and hears and knows. Thank you. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. I really do commend the Hauerwas essay to you. 
It's probably not difficult to find, particularly not if you have access to a decent university or seminary library. If you're in Winnipeg, if you're part of St. Benedict's Table, well, I'll loan you my copy as long as I get it back. And thanks to Robert Burton for recording his version of a Lenten song by Gord Johnson. Rob offered this one night as he hosted our online evening prayer, which he does not by singing, but by playing his guitar. And afterwards, I reached out to him and said, Boy, I would love to have that song in that version. And within days, he shot it my way. Thanks, Rob. Much appreciated. I'd invite you to consult the show notes for a little bit more information on the podcast and for a link back to our website where, if you wish, you could give a little bit of support to our online ministry. No obligation, but if it's something you'd like to do, it would be most appreciated. I'm your host and this time your speaker, Jamie Howison. Thanks for listening.